0: Hello and welcome to the OT Schoolhouse Podcast, your source for the latest school based occupational therapy tips, interviews, and research. Now, to get the conversation started, here are your hosts, Jason and Abby. Class is officially in session.
1: Indeed it is. Welcome everyone to the OT Schoolhouse Podcast. My name is Jason. And I'm Abby. And we are your hosts for the OT Schoolhouse Podcast. This is episode number one, the very, very first episode. First one. First one. So thank you guys. (laughs) Thank you everyone for uh, tuning in and listening to us. We really appreciate it. Today, we're actually going to be talking about everything you need in order to get through a great assessment, um, starting with being handed the referral actually even maybe before the referral all the way to the point where you are ready to present it at the IEP meeting for the for the rest of the team Um, so that's kind of what's coming up before we get into that though we thought that we should probably introduce ourselves so I'm gonna just go ahead and let Abby um, introduce herself go ahead
0: well, thanks, Jason. Um, I've been an occupational therapist. Well, I will have been coming up on 10 years. I've been working in the schools consistently for about four years now. Um, I Prior to that, I had some medical-based OT experience. Uh, when I first started looking into occupational therapy, it was graduating high school. I wanted to be an elementary school art teacher, and I shadowed I had the opportunity to shadow an occupational therapist who was working with a child who has cerebral palsy on an art project. And she was having her do this art project. And I thought, wow, that is really a very cool profession. Um, she was using the art project to get all kinds of movement uh, with the child that the child wouldn't normally be able to achieve. And I just thought that was amazing. So that led me to going to study occupational therapy. Working in school seemed like a natural progression to me as most of the people in my family, my mother, my grandmother, and my sister are all teachers. So I, it just seemed logical that I would end up in schools at some point. Um, and I really enjoy it. That's the other part. I guess that also makes sense to me. So, Jason, how did you end up in school-based OT?
1: I got into OT by observing my sister, actually. She's six years older than me, and she's also an occupational therapist. Um, And she was a pediatric OT as well, however, not school-based. She worked in a a sensory clinic in Pasadena, uh, California. And so I went and observed and helped out over at that clinic many many hours worth. And um, it was really cool because I always kind of had a helping heart, I guess. And being being there, seeing her, being able to help so many different kids with disabilities was really cool. And they were really lenient there and kind of, you know, let me be hands-on and kind of get some good experiences there. So I really enjoyed it. It's funny because actually, you know, just like Abby, I was more interested in an art Actually, like film production, but somehow I found my way into occupational therapy as well. So um, that's what's kind of cool about OT is a lot of people come from many different backgrounds. Yeah, so so I ended up at um, University of Southern California and got my bachelor and my master's in OT there. And I, too, have been in school-based. For about five years now, my first year was as a contract therapist, and then now I've been um, in the same school district that Abby and I are in together for about four years, Uh, and it's it's kind of cool. I got to actually start the start the OT program there, and eventually we brought on Abby, um, and so we are a growing occupational therapy department within our district, and um, Mm -hmm. it just keeps getting better. But. The one thing that we don't have is a lot of other OTs to collaborate with. So um, That's true. Yeah, so that's kind of why we're doing this, but I'm going to let Abby explain that a little bit more, explain what the OT Schoolhouse is. So uh, go ahead, Abby.
0: Oh, no, you definitely touched on it. I think um, our conversations in the office definitely led us to decide to bring those conversations to a platform such as OT Schoolhouse, where we have a website and a podcast that can bring all of the information and resources that you and I share together to a community of school-based OTs um, because our job is difficult. There's a lot of things that are constantly changing and we need to stay up to date on those things. So some of the things that OT schoolhouse that we hope to achieve are to bring you good articles and blog posts about strategies and things to make our jobs easier, more efficient, and uh, just better all around. We also have a good clickable map where you can check out your state guidelines. And we're hoping to bring you continuing education units as well on different school-based OT topics, so you can go ahead and sign up for our email list, and we'll keep you up to date on those things. And then, of course, the podcast. Our podcast is a cool place for us to bounce ideas off of each other, as well as bring together input from different members that could be on an IEP team, um, as well as occupational therapists that are doing cool things in the field of OT that are related to school-based practice. So we're really trying to you know, narrow down what school-based OTs are working on and bring you that information so that we can make our jobs easier and your jobs easier essentially
1: yeah very true and with that you know our, our goals for you guys um, and for us as well is just to continue to learn Abby and Mm -hmm. I are both, you know, we both are huge advocates for OTs. We are huge advocates for our students. And we are huge advocates for continuing education. Um, We both, you know, we attend the Occupational Therapy Association of California Conference every year. And we're hoping to go to AOTA Mm -hmm. this year in in Utah. Um, That's a big. (laughs) That's (laughs) right. So if any of you are there, uh, we'll come find us. Um, Yeah. But um, we want to be here for you guys as much as we honestly need you guys to be here for us. Because we want to learn from you guys as well. And like Abby touched upon, you know, we're going to have a bunch of different people on this show. You know, sometimes it may just be Abby and I talking and giving you, you know, something that we're doing today that works. Um, but other times we're going to bring on a teacher, an administrator, another OT, someone who's creating a curriculum, a handwriting curriculum, you know, maybe um, someone from the the school or the Size Matters or Handwriting Without Tears program, something like that. So, Abby, I yeah. even
0: have, oh, well, I mean, I even discussed... Uh, One of our newer uh, special education teachers who works in a moderate to severe special day class, she would love to come on of just what her needs are working with those students in that population. And that really helps when you're trying to collaborate with students. So just having a perspective of what teachers and staff are needing, OTs can really impact so many areas. So I'm really excited to, I don't know, just get into it.
1: Yeah, and I don't know about you guys, but I love helping teachers because I, I feel like I can help one kid mm-hmm. at a time, maybe a small group of kids at a time. But when I help a teacher, I can help thirty kids at a time. And that's true. every every year they have thirty new kids, and so if I help one teacher today, I could touch however many lives. So that's really cool. So I think we just about touched on everything that we wanted to touch in our intro, and so um, we're gonna hop right into this assessment piece of our of our. Very, very first episode. Sorry, I can't get over this. It's our very first episode. This is so cool. Aren't you excited? It's exciting?
0: really exciting. Yeah. I'm really pumped. <laughs>
1: right. <laughs> so uh, we hope you guys are pumped too. I mean, we're, we're digging it and we hope you guys, you guys are loving it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so today we're actually kind of going to go over assessments, like I said earlier. We're going to talk. Uh, we have about 10 things here that we just want to go over. And these are very actionable things that you can, honestly, if you wanted to, start tomorrow. Um, they're going to be about what to do when you get that referral, um, what to do once you've done an observation, what to do, and so forth. You know, We're just going to yep. kind of make it very actionable, uh, very straightforward for you. And we know a lot of OTs are kind of wondering about assessments because everyone does them differently. And so yeah. um, we kind of want to yeah. help you. Maybe odds are you're probably doing... 80, 90 percent of what we're going to talk about today. But um, maybe today you'll hear one piece that kind of resonates with you that we do and uh, maybe it'll help out. So um, without further ado, let's get into it, Abby. Um, What is the first thing that you should do when you receive a referral for an assessment?
0: So in our district, I mean, you can receive a referral for Nearly anything. Um, And I oftentimes am stopped by teachers or staff in the hallways or I'll get a random email or a phone call from someone just saying like, hey, this kid needs an OT assessment because of X, Y, or Z. And it may or may not be related to OT. So once you've gotten that referral, um, Jason and I have a referral form that we're asking staff to fill out. And then we actually send out the assessment plan ourselves along with a parent questionnaire, um, once we receive that referral. Because you have to assess in every suspected area of need, obtaining that referral form and really getting to the concern of the teacher or the parent is probably the most important thing that you have to do first. So uh, in the beginning, that's usually where I start. So once I've received a referral, it's important to get signed permission from the parent to you know, via an assessment plan to assess the child. And once you've obtained that, it's good to delve into their history and background. That's the first thing. Um, You want to get a really good, strong developmental history and background on the student. And that comes from parent interviews, that comes from chart reviews, and any other assessments that have been completed prior. So this allows you to really establish what the concerns are for the child that could be impacting their academic performance. Um yeah. Jason, do you have anything you want to add to that part?
1: I mean yeah, the first thing I try to do is honestly I try to write, I try to write the first part of my assessment before I even see the kid. Um mm-hmm. and that just starts off by going through the documentation. Um, looking at the psychoeducational evaluation, looking at the speech evaluation if there is one, any medical charts that we have based upon the kid. But yeah, that really helps to give that profile of who this kid is and what may or may not be uh, the problem. Um, as you get down further, you'll see, you know, it's an evaluation is almost like narrowing down to the least common denominator. And um, if you don't have that background, I mean, you don't know what to look at. So, you're looking at fine motor, gross motor, visual motor, visual spatial, visual perception, um, anything else. Sensory. Sensory, Right? You're looking at everything. You're looking Mm -hmm. at everything. So, um, if you can kind of narrow that down, it will save you time when you move on to steps two, three, four, and and down the line. So, um, and and you know what? The second step in our process is actually… Finding out the reason for a referral, which is kind of what we just mm-hmm. talked about, they're kind of interchangeable. A background and finding the reason for a referral, boom—you you've got to get those. Step step one, step two, kind of happen at the same time. So, right. the next step in the process Perfect. is to collaborate with case carriers and other IEP team members. So, Abby, go oh ahead. Oh
0: gosh, oh gosh, yeah. And if you're lucky, like Jason and I, we work out of our district office, so most of our school psychologists are located right within our district office and if not you know they're a short email slash phone call away Um, i constantly talk to our school psychologists about their report findings um, before an iep meeting and before i even go in to assess the student whenever i can now i know we're all pressed for time i mean this is not the perfect system But I think collaborating with the teacher, the speech therapist, and the school psychologist is super important before you even go assess the child. And the reason being is, you know, if you are looking at a child, I don't know, Jason, like for instance, I had a student that they were claiming a lot of sensory difficulties with, but he also had an auditory processing deficit as well as a visual processing deficit. And if you think of a school environment, those two deficits I mean, that's how we, that's how most information is presented in education setting. And so a child that has difficulty with those processing skills can also then have difficulties with attention. And so, you know, um, and create a lot of anxiety for them if they're trying to learn. And so what might be looked at as a sensory difficulty is more related to, the auditory and visual processing. So I like knowing that information before I go in and work with a student.
1: Oh, definitely. And especially in the population, we're in a rural area. And so um, a lot of our kids are, well, they haven't had yeah. the best nutrition. They haven't had the best um, mm-hmm. medical care we have a very high percentage of kids that are foster or um, in foster yeah, homes. And all of true. this can can make a big difference in how a kid performs in school. And so that's very important to, to know this. And um, by talking to people and by looking at the reports, you can just gain so much that you wouldn't if you just went straight to a standardized test. So... True. Going forward, um, the next step that we do, um, again, before we even do standardized assessments, is we go in and we observe the kid. Um, The reason I do this Mm -hmm. before the assessments is because I don't want the kid to know who I am, why I'm there. And so I kind of sneak in and, and get some observations before the kid. And uh, knows who I am typically, you know by the end of the observation, they figured out that I'm watching them but
0: um <laughs> <laughs> unless you're very sneaky very like sneaky me. No, very I'm very,
1: very sneaky no <laughs> very, but very um <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, those <laughs> observations are so important, and um I know. Abby and I, we both we both try to observe in as many areas as possible. I mean, mm-hmm. we start off with a morning routine. We try to get in there during recess, um, during lunch, anything, any area mm-hmm. where that kid um, might be having difficulty. And and hopefully we already kind of know where that is because we've, we've looked at the research, or not the research, but the data from previous um, professionals, the teacher and the psych, right. to know what, what we're looking for. Um, you yeah. know, some kids don't have problems in the classroom but they have problems at recess and without knowing that we might go in and we might go in and observe them during the classroom and then we get to the iep and they're like oh did you see the kid at recess Or are like uh no <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. so we want to make sure that we observe them in all the areas necessary so yeah. um do you have anything to add abby
0: Oh, yeah, of course. Um, I think it's really important to observe the student both in structured and unstructured time, as well as during classes when the student is super confident, like in areas of strength. So if a child says, you know, I do really well in you know, reading and writing, cl- like in classes that involve reading and writing or science or history, you want to observe them in there. But then if they tell you, you know, math is my least favorite class and you find out that they're having all these behaviors with their math teacher, you also want to observe there. So that way that can really tell you a lot about the strengths and weaknesses of the student and their own perceived strength and weakness. And that can make you have a better informed decision on how you're going to guide the IEP team and. um, Function, you know, maximizing that child's potential as far as their functional abilities related to their school schooling.
1: Yeah. yeah, and um, and that's something you know we don't they don't know about us yet. But you work in a lot of the middle schools, and so um, especially with that, <laughs> yeah, you have a chance to to talk with a lot of especially the kids who may have like a specific learning disability or something. You know, they're yes. mostly in general education, but um, you. You want their input as well, not just the teacher and not just the parent and not just, you know, the principal, but also the student's input. So, yeah, that's great. So what's the next step after observations? What's the next step, Abby?
0: After observations, I usually start pulling the student to assess them. And at this point, it's good to build a good rapport. And you need to remember that you are assessing in all suspected areas of disability. Um, And that is a direct term from a training we went to with our school lawyer. (laughs) So uh, when you're looking at all suspected areas of disability, the bar is very low. So if you're suspecting that the kid is having trouble with anything really functionally related to school, you are required to kind of assess in that area. Sorry if that was loud. Um, So you don't want to leave anything unturned. I use both functional skills observations as well as standardized assessments. So sometimes standardized assessments don't, they might be scoring well below average, but they're also getting A's and B's in the classes that would require that skill. So they may be able to compensate for those things. So don't rely solely on standardized testing. And mostly, I mean, well, our California state guidelines, they don't really say we have to rely solely on standardized testing, correct?
1: They actually say that you don't have to rely on standardized yeah. testing. Um, if, if I recall correctly, they basically just say that you can't um, make a decision based upon one source of source of information, so um, by getting those observations by getting those um, functional assessments by by talking with the other professionals that 's your multiple sources of input so even if you don 't have a standardized assessment you can still you can still say whether or not a child or I guess you shouldn't say whether or not they need it, but you can make a recommendation to the team whether or not they need occupational therapy. So that's a great, yeah. great input. Um, and
0: Oh, I might add one more thing to that. Sorry. Um, one more caveat that I learned, uh, recently after kind of like a difficult case would be meaningful participation of the parent. So in your OT assessment, just making sure that you meet the guidelines kind of for that meaningful participation. So don't go through your whole assessment without ever getting parent input. Always at least send home a parent questionnaire and call them for an interview um, and add that to your report findings just because you need to be allowing the parent meaningful participation in all aspects of that child's education. So just to cover your bases, that's a really good point to start. And that allows you, I mean, and that allows you to have rapport with the parent. So when you're going into the meeting, it's not like, Oh, who's this OT that's going to tell me about my kid. It's you've already established some sort of communication.
1: No, exactly. Um, You hit on all points right there. I mean, just, just talking to the parent can help you in an IEP team in an IEP meeting so much. I mean, just by knowing the parent before and knowing what their main concerns are, um, a lot of times we wait till the IEP team's like basically the the meeting's over, and then we say, "Oh, parents, by the way, what's your concern?" We, should, yeah, so <laughs> we shouldn't be doing that. So we should, we backwards. should, we need to know what the parents' concerns are before. So, um, yeah. So then after that, Abby kind of already touched upon it, but relating your assessments to the school based functional mm-hmm. skills. Um, like she said, you know, if you're, if your kid has below average scores on the bot, but they can copy anything you give them. Well, then they've learned to accommodate for their for their poor visual motor skills or whatever it might be. I mean, okay, maybe they can't copy a star, but they yeah. can copy the alphabet, like nobody's business, and can copy from the board. And um, so, again, academically, how is it going to functionally impact their skills in the classroom? I really like this next one. Abby kind of surprised me with it in her um, in her list, but. Adding, she has it in here as add the guidelines stuff. I like that because yeah. <laughs> what she means is she's literally pulling information straight from the California guidelines or um, IDEA or the practice framework. So go ahead, right. Amy.
0: So you don't want to just, um, and I mean, I think I learned this because of being involved in some due process cases. I've never actually, you know, had to justify things on a witness stand, but I think it's important that. If you are talking about your school-based assessment, you need to make it as objective as possible and refer to your ethical and guidelines, state guidelines and standards so you take it away from your subjective professional opinion and your your professional opinion is always based on guidelines provided to you by the association giving your professional you know, title. Mm-hmm. So when you're giving your assessment report findings, you need to refer to that because you are not just pulling these recommendations out of nowhere. You're pulling them based on guidelines that you've been provided. It doesn't really matter if you're recommending services or not recommending services. You need to always do it in accordance with your guidelines. And so that'll save you a lot of hassle and it takes out the subjective component which is not easily defensible if you're too subjective you can't defend yourself because it's your opinion and well uh, opinions are opinions you know there's no it's hard to defend an opinion
1: yeah no joke Uh, Um, that's my opinion yeah (laughs) right i'll argue your opinion abby no um (laughs) No. And with that, also uh, research, any type of research that you might have come across in the age or any other, um, mm-hmm. publication, you know, any research you can add will always help back you up. Um, with
0: those handwriting referrals for sure.
1: Right. Please. Lastly,
0: okay.
1: we got to sum yeah. it up. We got to sum up the report. How do you sum up your report?
0: Well, you need to tie all those dots together. Um, So if you have your sensory and your fine motor and your visual perception and your, you know, functional skills, you've got to kind of, and your observations, you've got to bring all that together and pinpoint, you know, and address the concern. You want to tie it back to the original concern and the referral uh, for occupational therapy. And then you want to tie back to, you know, what your findings were. So if your kid is having you know, low visual motor integration skills, you've got to tie all those strings together and come up with a remediation plan. So I oftentimes think to myself, if I can't come up with a specific plan for this kid, then you probably don't, they probably don't need the OT services. So you should, as part of your report, be coming up with a plan and coming up with ideas of how you're going to fix the problems that you're finding, and that plan is all put into your recommendations. And then, of course, you go into your remediation plan, which leads to your goals. I like in that in the IEP.
1: Yeah. Um. In fact, just recently at the end of my reports, I added a prognosis section, and it, I mean prognosis I like may that. or may not be the right. That. Yeah, that may or may not be the right term, but the plan I like too. It's like. If you don't, I like what you just said. If you don't have a specific plan of how you're going to help this kid, then maybe you're not going to be able to help the kid. And right. you know what? As OTs, we have to be able to to say that to an IEP team. You know, mm-hmm. say, hey, you know what? I'm seeing this, this, and this with your student, um, but I'm sorry, OT, at this time may not be the best um, solution and maybe counseling is the right solution or maybe speech therapy is the right solution or maybe behavioral interventions is the right solution. So, um, or, you know,
0: oh, sorry, Jason, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I just thought of something or, you know, maybe if you don't have a plan, but you can provide, you know, ideas on accommodations under like your supplemental supports, that is a, that is a way to do that, too. You know, if, it's, if it can be fixed with a simple strategy like chunking information or changing the child's seating or anything like that, there's no problem putting that under supplemental aids and supports. But OT doesn't necessarily need to be a service to make sure that happens.
1: I agree with that. So the last thing we have on our list is also thinking about the future um, kind of coming up with a plan for when this student may not need ot anymore you know what do we see? Mm-hmm. how long is this how long is ot suspected to need to be on this kid's case before maybe he doesn't need ot again or maybe he'll be he'll finish a few different goals and he'll be able to. Uh, be independent in the class. So,
0: Well, um, I think discharge planning should always be a part of your assessment. Um, I think once you've identified the concern and you start talking about how OT is going to help the child and you have a plan and you have a goal and you go through that process, um, I do not like the idea of OT services being on an IEP for three to six years or indefinitely, which happens rather regularly, actually. Um, I see that all the time and exiting kids from services is super difficult. So I, yeah, it can be really hard. Um, and you need to assess a kid when you do exit them to make sure there's not another area that you're missing. And I agree with that. But when you are looking at an OT assessment, I think it's important to just have that discussion starting from the beginning. Saying, you know, OT is not a service that is meant to be there permanently. We want the we want to foster independence with the child, and I think having those discussions um, up front with the IEP team, whether that takes, I mean, that could take many years. That's fine, but you need to start talking about it in your remediation plan and talking about that. OT services you you don't want the kid to constantly receive OT services. If they are, then they're not making progress. So you know, I think that that's important to just have that conversation up front. Not that you're predetermining an exit from OT, just that you're the goal of OT is to not always receive OT and the goal for school is that the child be in school learning.
1: Yeah, definitely. And unfortunately, there is a I don't want to call it a misconception because for some kids it's perfect and for other kids it's not so perfect. But the idea of once you're in special education, you're in special education forever. Or once right. you receive speech, you're in speech forever. Same thing with OT. And that's not how it should be. I mean, we're here to get these kids back into general education um, in right. any way that we can do that. I mean,
0: least restrictive environment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. <laughs> and every every 30 minutes that I see them in a pull out session, they're missing education, which puts them further behind. Um, And of course, that's a whole another discussion between pullout and inclusion services, which we do hope to have here in the future for you. All right, guys. So uh, sorry if we started rambling on here for a minute, but um, just to (laughs) sum it up, um, these are... are (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Sorry, guys. If This is the very first episode we're recording and we hope it's, uh, well, we hope it's the best episode and the worst episode because we want them to get better every day, every week. So um, with that being said, I'm going to run through this list real quick. First, you got to start with your developmental profile of the child and the reason for the referral. Then from there, you got to collaborate with the case carrier and other members, as well as review reports so that you can get the best idea of what is going on with the child. Um, From there, Abby and I, we like to observe the student in all areas, um, recess, everywhere. From there, we go into our standardized assessments. And then um, after that, once we have our scores for the standardized assessments, we are relating our assessments back to the school-based functional need of the child. So how do those, um, the scores that they scored on the bot, how is that affecting their functional skills in the classroom? Right. Um, after that, we then definitely look for some, some stuff that we can incorporate from our practice framework. Um, what's an ADL versus what's not an ADL? What's an occupation versus a habit versus all that good stuff? Yeah. and find out what our guidelines say and we understand that not every state has guidelines um, so you may have to focus on that practice framework framework but uh, the California, New York, I think Chicago, all of them have pretty good guidelines so I recommend checking out those guidelines all right then you got and Ohio
0: to, has good guidelines yeah, too
1: yeah there's a few really good ones um <laughs> After that, once you've uh, got all that stuff in there, now you got to sum it up. You got to kind of relate the strengths to the concerns, as well as what Mm -hmm. your recommendations are going to be. And like Abby said, your recommendations could be services, they could be collaborations with the teacher, or they could um, be just like simple things, like a different type of desk that the child may have, an accommodation, yeah, a Um, slant board, right. All right. And then I really like this one. The last um, the last two that Abby was talking about here was finding evidence to make a plan. Because like she said, yes. if you don't have a plan, how are you going to help the kid? And then well, the-
0: and I would just add to that real quick. If you are looking for evidence, just start putting it in a binder. Make a handwriting evidence studies binder and a sensory processing studies <laughs> binder. And then you, once you've looked it up for one kid just start sticking it in a binder and that way you have it on hand. Like, oh, I have another eighth grade referral for handwriting messiness. And look at all these studies saying, you know, it's habituated or whatever it is that you're looking at. And then you can pull those studies out and be like, this is the prognosis and this is the evidence. So just start stocking that stuff away with each (laughs) case that you have. That's all I wanted to throw in there.
1: Yeah, no. And then the very last one, which is planning for the future, looking, you know, just... Letting the parents know, you know, OT won't be on forever, hopefully. And, you know, if they need it, it will be on forever, but hopefully it won't be. And you know what? Mm -hmm. Once the student meets this, 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 and this, and any other future concerns that we might have, well, then it's going to be time to get that student back into the least restrictive environment. Um, Real quick, Abby, how long does it take you, would you say, to do an assessment from referral to writing up the report?
0: I mean, honestly, it probably takes me... Mm six i would say at least 6 hours compare like from ob- if you count all the observation time the writing time the refer- it can take 6 hours to even 10 i would yeah. say total time to do a good occupational therapy assessment and i know that's hard yeah to do
1: and it's hard because of time constraints <laughs> i mean when you got a caseload yeah. of 70 74 kids something like that it gets hard, but um, yeah, that's a whole another conversation. That again, hope to have with uh, trying to figure out caseload and workloads. But um, mm-hmm. I agree, I, it takes me a good six plus hours to do a really good assessment. And mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to lie; sometimes I catch myself kind of doing, you know, a, a not so great quality assessment sometimes. And me
0: too, and we've and all been me, there,
1: right? <laughs> it makes me yeah. feel bad, and you know what? I I end up. A lot of times I go back and I, I do end up putting that time in because I don't want to be putting a, a bad um, assessment. I mean, the last thing I want is for the kid to move and then another OT reading my assessment being like, what's this? I mean, come on now. I think we've
0: all sent those assessments and read those assessments. Probably. You're just like, oh my gosh, what were they doing? <laughs> and then you're also like, you send an set. Assess- like, I think of assessments I wrote three years ago where I was like, oh my goodness. Definitely. What in the world? And then I look at the kid now, and I'm like, "What was I thinking? I'm not even <laughs> sure what I was thinking about that kid." And then you're, "Oh, yep, I figured it out."
1: Yep, yeah, I've done the same thing. It happens.
0: We right. all are there at right. some point.
1: Right. All right, <laughs> yeah. and with that, it is time to wrap up this episode. Episode one, the very first episode Woo-hoo! of the OT we School. How woo woo? <laughs> So, um, with that, you know, we just want to let you guys all know that you can find all the resources we mentioned, including a blog that is kind of about the assessment that we just went through, the 10 steps to an assessment. And um, all that will be at otschoolhouse.com backslash episode one. So, otschoolhouse.com backslash episode one, and you'll be able to see it there. And with that, well, we hope you enjoyed this podcast and we hope you'll go to the website and subscribe. Um, yeah. And when you do subscribe, you will be um, you'll receive a download for some adapted paper that we made um, mm-hmm. that helps kids with spacing and sizing of their letters. And um, you'll also you be do. yeah, you'll also be the first one to know about any future podcasts we have coming out or resources that are coming up. And, and a uh, newsletter. And a and newsletter. A news- oh yeah. Yep. Newsletter.
0: Fun. I don't know why we didn't start this sooner, Jason.
1: Right. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> thank you guys. Thank you everyone out there uh, for joining us today at the OG Schoolhouse. We cannot be more appreciative of you listening to this podcast right now. We hope this helps. And visit us at the site and feel free to contact us. We'd love to hear from you guys. So everyone, take care. Have a good one.
0: Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the OT Schoolhouse podcast. For more ways to help you and your students succeed right now, head on over to OTSchoolhouse.com. Until next time, class is dismissed. Can I be like, can you hear that?
1: Yes, I can hear that. Okay.
0: Just, I feel like you should just put that on. (laughs) Can you hear that? (laughs) I'll be like, me, me, me. (laughs) Stop tapping your mic.